National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we'll get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my very best to find experts who can address your topic. So let's get started. We have a great show for you today. We're going to talk about how the U.S. government combats propaganda messaging used by both nation states and non-state actors alike. When we think about the tools of national power, and different aspects of how soft and sharp power are used, today's topic is predominantly part of the power of information in the acronym DIME. As a reminder, DIME stands for Diplomacy, Information, Military, and Economic Power. Our guest today is Ms. Leah Gabriel. Leah Gabriel has had a long and distinguished career in service to the United States. A graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, she's a former Human Intelligence Operations Officer, a Defense Foreign Liaison Officer, a U.S. Navy Program Director, a Navy F-18 fighter pilot, and a national television news correspondent and anchor. Leah Gabriel recently left the leadership position for the U.S. Department of State's Global Engagement Center. She served as U.S. Special Envoy leading that center for 24 months from February of 2019 to February of 2021. Leah Gabriel, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, JR. It's great to be here with you and with your audience. And and you're calling in today from uh, Virginia? That's correct. Today I'm in Virginia Beach, Virginia. All right. So let's get started with our discussion. There's lots to cover today. You have an impressive resume. Let's start our discussion today with your time as a U.S. Navy fighter pilot. What operations did you fly in? And can, t- can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to fly an F-18 Hornet on some of the lengthy missions you flew over, say, Afghanistan? Well, yes, JR. So I um, most of my missions were in support of Operation Enduring Freedom over Afghanistan and you know, we were launching from an aircraft carrier um, and flying what, what took about an hour to get into Afghanistan. Uh, so when you think about what this mission entails and what we were actually doing there, we were supporting troops on the ground um, by providing cover in the air so that if they needed close air support, if they ran into an engagement on the ground, that we were already there and already uh, armed up and ready to to come in and support those troops if they needed it. So when you think about the complexity the complexities of those types of missions, they were very long, um, up to seven hours, and we would launch off of the aircraft carrier, and uh, there was a lot of uh, in-flight refueling because uh, you would, you'd have to tank multiple times uh, before you started going in-country, you know, while you were in-country, and then before you came back to land on the aircraft carrier, usually at night, and I think that that was one of the biggest challenges is that you had to really, really stay on and ready because uh, some of the most dangerous portions of those missions were in the very last seconds mm. when you were coming in to land on the aircraft carrier at night. So intense time, um, but it always felt like a, a special uh, a special opportunity to be ready and and waiting in case our troops on the ground needed our support. And you provided close air support for both uh, Army and Marine Corps units, is that right, or one of the other? Uh, so, so, yeah, we, we were there to support pretty much sectors of um, the region that we were covering. So it it wasn't specific to, you know, uh, different services. It was really for um, our, um, our blue troops on the ground and our, our partners on the ground. So the NATO, the NATO allies that were there uh, as part of the mission as well. 
Correct. The International Security Assistance Force. Okay. So you transitioned out of the uh, out of the cockpit uh, to the Defense Intelligence Agency, I think, at one point, and you served as a foreign liaison officer. What tell, what what's that assignment uh, detail? What were you doing with that job? So that was really interesting, Jr. Because I really wanted to grow from beyond the cockpit and understand more of what we were doing um, from a broader defense perspective with our with our international partners. Uh, so I was a defense foreign liaison officer at the Office of International Engagements at the DIA. And in that role, I was the principal contact between uh, the DOD and the defense attaches of about 40 nations okay. um, during the time that I served in the role. And, you know, I was organizing international military cooperation, uh, information sharing operations um, between these four military officers who were assigned to diplomatic missions and U.S. government leaders, oftentimes um, helping to, uh, to set up meetings and to provide information for meetings to our uh, director of the Defense Intelligence Agency at the time. And I know uh, from my own personal experience as a naval attaché serving in, in Helsinki, Finland, that uh, that there's a lot of cooperation that happens between governments through those military contacts. Uh, uh, can you give us some maybe some of the names of the countries that uh, that you had connections with? Uh, well, you know, we worked very quick. We worked very closely with the Brits, and then one of my favorite. Uh, relationships that I had was with um, Colonel Lee from Republic of Korea. Mm. Uh, we worked very closely together. He oftentimes had a request for information for me, and it was really about you know building close relationships, person to person relationships, and helping to be mutually supportive. So it was a really fun role and sort of my first introduction to uh, diplomacy. Yeah. So you transitioned from naval aviation into naval intelligence, uh, which gave you insights into the world based on you know, all-source collections and, and your own operations in the field. Uh, you eventually became a DOD human intelligence operations officer, or a, or a case officer, as they say. How did serving as a case officer prepare you for your career in journalism? So first of all, you know, I don't know how much your audience knows about uh, our relationship, but I think uh, you know, it's, it's um, important for them to know that you, JR, were one of um, the uh, sort of fathers of uh, human intelligence in the Navy, at least for our modern time. And you were one of the people who actually recruited me into that program. So thank you. It was an incredible opportunity and a, and a way to grow and serve our country in unique ways that um, I could have never imagined uh, before I met you and some of the others involved. Um, but y you and I both know that in working in human intelligence, you have to really be able to develop close relationships with sources and you have to be able to vet those sources and understand uh, how truthful they are, whether they can be counted on for factual information. As a human intelligence officer, you really um, have to have to get down to the um, bottom line as to whether or not you can trust them because oftentimes military operations are dependent on the information that they're giving you and sometimes it is single source information. Yeah. So it really trained me uh, to be able to develop relationships with sources, to find the right sources to get to the bottom of a story, and then to be able to vet them to figure out, can I count on them to give me truthful information? And then you kind of have to stream through the information that you're given and figure out in the intelligence world what is intelligence, and in the news world what is actual news that you, that you could be breaking with those sources. So I think the very high-stakes environment that we operated in and doing uh, human intelligence uh, directly related to uh, to being able to vet, you know, truthful information uh, to be able to report for the news. Uh, sadly, the uh, the news, and especially television news, has really changed. And I think that there's not nearly as much of a 
um, focus on journalism and people who are who are finding real sources of information. It's such a fast-paced environment now that oftentimes when you're watching television, you may be seeing a journalist on a panel sitting next to somebody who's a commentator and who doesn't necessarily have the same level of expectations um, in terms of uh, sourcing and vetting their information. And so there's a lot of, I think, misinformation and disinformation that's out there in the news environment these days. Yeah. So you eventually left journalism uh, and and were appointed U.S. Special Envoy uh, to lead the Global Engagement Center at the U.S. Department of State. Uh, what was it about that particular assignment that drew you in? You know, you know I mean, you left a lucrative career uh, in journalism to return to service to the nation. Was that a tough or, a, or an easy choice? So in terms of um, leaving a lucrative uh, position, <laughs> that part's tough. But it, it's really, it was really an easy choice. And that's because I felt that the mission was so very critical. Um, the, I think countering propaganda and disinformation really is the mission of our time. Because everything that the United States is doing in terms of foreign policy, international security, is being um, undercut right now by propaganda and disinformation. And so I thought it was a really important assignment. I understood that we were really just starting to build the capabilities within the U.S. government and had not been successful in doing that uh, yet. Uh, It was a new and growing organization. Um, And so I felt like it was critical to use all the experience that I had uh, leadership experience, um, information operations and influence operations experience, um, you know, having had experience in diplomacy, and then really understanding what drives narratives uh, in the media, I thought was important experience to bring to the table. And what I found when I took that position, which is a um, political appointment, it was a presidential appointment uh, to the State Department, is that I had an incredible team of people who are true experts, and I was able to work with that team and build and grow uh, our capabilities and our strategy um, so that we could really uh, be leading the way we needed to in the mission. And for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Leah Gabriel, and we're discussing the role of the Department of State's Global Engagement Center. All right, so, Leah, what is the U.S. Department of State's Global Engagement Center, also known as the GEC? So the GEC, the Global Engagement Center, has the mission of directing, leading, synchronizing, and coordinating the efforts of the U.S. government uh, to counter foreign propaganda and disinformation that's aimed at undermining the security or the stability of the United States and our partners and allies Um, So the GEC was established uh, in 2016 initially to uh, counter propaganda from uh, violent extremist organizations, from terrorist organizations. But that mission was expanded in 2017 to counter state-sponsored disinformation. So, for example, we were countering uh, disinformation from Russia, China, Iran, and then, of course, as I mentioned, uh, violent extremist organizations. And, and when you assume that leadership role, uh, what would you say were the, were the top three tasks that you faced? So the first one was to lead. Uh, the GEC had not yet grown and developed capabilities and also the reputation within the U.S. interagency with our partners to really lead. It had become a player in the space. But the number one, I, I think, um, mission that I had was to really place us in a position to be able to lead. Uh, The second was to build a strategy. We really hadn't yet built a strategy. We had done a lot of more localized programs, and we wanted to essentially create um, 
essentially the heart of a machine that could uh, lead and coordinate with all of our partners uh, in the interagency and internationally. Um, and then the third piece was to connect the Global Engagement Center with the resources that it needed. It was extremely under-resourced, and I will tell you that it still is. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, China, and the Chinese Communist Party um, engages in information operations on the order of about $10 billion a year, uh, and the GEC is still uh, very underfunded. But we were able to um, get significant resources to be able to grow the size of our team, our capabilities, and to give us some of the, the basic um, resources that we needed to be able to execute on the mission. So let me let me follow up on on that uh, on your answers a little bit on the second part, uh, developing a strategy. How, what was the process that you and your team used to develop a strategy for what GEC would do uh, to combat this foreign propaganda? Well, we we basically boiled it down into a few major lines of effort, and in terms of how we built the strategy. You know, when I came into the Global Engagement Center, like I said, I, I saw that we had um, extraordinary people and expertise, and we just hadn't formulated yet into a cohesive strategy that could that can bring all of the different types of threat actors that we were up against into one complete strategy um, that, that worked across the teams. And each of the threat actors that use disinformation and propaganda to undermine the U.S., operate in slightly different ways, but there's also similarities. So we had to figure out how to how to basically build a cohesive strategy. So we really did it from the ground up, working with each of our teams. We have uh, a Russia team, an Iran team, um, a uh, China team, and a, a, a CT team. And so those team leaders, along with an analytics and research team director and a technology engagement team director, um, worked with our uh, resources to basically come up with a strategy that worked across the board. Um, and I can give you a little bit of um, a little bit more insights into the way we actually conduct uh, counter disinformation um, and propaganda operations. But ultimately, you know, if you were to put it into a couple of main buckets, one is, like I said before, really bringing all the different resources to bear across the U.S. government and with our foreign partners and allies and being a real coordination mechanism. Mm. So we built um, a platform, a digital platform to help with that coordination where we provided um, analytics um, tools and also trained our partners on how to use them. We, our data science um, and analytics team uh, created some of their own programs and we also use commercially available programs to be able to assess the information environment and recognize um, uh, for example, inauthentic uh, swarms of inauthentic accounts online or um, coordinated influence operations that were happening online. And we shared those tools with our partners so that not only were we feeding into that um, that international platform that we developed, but that our partners could as well in this collaborative environment. And then we also created a um, international and interagency coordination cell to do person-to-person -person coordination uh, so that not only do we have a place where we can put all our eyeballs essentially in the same place, but also so that we're making sure that, that we're talking to each other as we're planning um, our different um, coordinated campaigns. And then um, I think the other uh, you know main bucket that you could put what we were doing into in our, our other line of effort would be um, in actually executing uh, coordinated um, uh, campaigns to counter propaganda and disinformation. So we were leading on those. Uh, a good example of that is how we worked with our partners across the U.S. government to expose Almala and um, uh, how uh, he's really a liar. He's the leader of ISIS, and he's really a liar, and he 
uh, sold out a lot of his uh, so-called brothers, um, and we were able to work with our partners uh, across the U.S. interagency to um, declassify some reports uh, that identified uh, some of some of how he exposed his so-called brothers. Um, and we worked with the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS, where the Global Engagement Center um, leads as one of the three co-leads for the communications working group for the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. So we were, you know, uh, executing um, coordinated campaigns and also really leading on that coordination. All right. So as you learned the job's responsibilities leading the GEC, what surprised you the most about uh, what the Global Engagement Center was able to do in countering propaganda from both uh, nation states and, and non-state actors alike? Yeah, I think what surprised me the most is how, you know, we, we um, so much of what we're doing is just, is just enabling our partners uh, to, to shed light on the truth, right? So uh, we're shedding light on the truth, we're exposing, and we are um, using exposure techniques to work with our partners and allies so I think you know um, a good example of that is how we um, how we published a report called the Pillars of Russian Russia's Disinformation Ecosystem, um, and in exposing this disinformation ecosystem, it it helps to counter propaganda disinformation. So we did that, but we also, as I mentioned, we're coordinating with interagency partners and international allies to be able to detect, expose, and counter foreign disinformation and propaganda, and we. Um, exchanged analysis with our partners. Uh, we were providing training and support for counter disinformation efforts. And we really worked to um, forge a community of government and non-government partners to be able to to counter using data-driven analysis and fact-based narratives. So to provide a few more specifics on how we did that, you know, we've developed partnerships with key local messengers um, across the world who have the reach and the resonance uh, with specific target audiences worldwide. Um, we have worked with our partners and allies to deploy technology uh, that can help to provide early indicators and warnings for disinformation, and then um, analyzing disinformation and assessing its impact on foreign audiences, and then sharing that information. Um, we've also really worked hard to build international networks and to strengthen the technical skills of civil society organizations, uh, NGOs, journalists, and other actors that are best positioned, non, non-government, non-U.S. government, oftentimes third-party credible voices, essentially, that are best positioned to shine a light on um, and to counter uh, malign influence operations that are coming from Russia, um, the uh, Chinese Communist Party, uh, Iran, and others. Uh, and like I said before, coordinating those efforts. So another thing that we've really uh, worked hard to do is help to connect domestic agencies to technologies that can really support their efforts. Uh, we developed um, a series of technology demonstrations with our interagency partners where we're bringing some of the most state-of-the-art technologies that can be used to counter propaganda and disinformation um, into this collaborative environment so that others within um, our uh, interagency environment could understand and learn about those technologies. So uh, it, it sounds like uh, you were slacking quite a bit during those two years. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it really was a sprint, Jr. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. it's because you know when you come in as a political appointee, you know that you most likely have a very limited period of time, and you want to have as much effect as you possibly can. And I think you know we have uh, a, a team of incredible, uh, dedicated. Um, professionals that are working on this problem set. But as a political, you have the opportunity to really connect them with the resources that you can get 
um, from the top level leadership at the State Department um, and across the U.S. government. And one of the things that we really had was very strong support from our Secretary of State Pompeo um, and his leadership team. And so that helped us uh, to, to really be able to get the resources we need, uh, we needed at the time to be able to drive mission success. As I mentioned, the, the downside is that, you know, ultimately uh, funding comes from Congress um, mm -hmm. and uh, we, we weren't able to get the level of funding that we really had hoped for and that the Global Engagement Center really does need going forward. So I'm hopeful that um, as the team continues to prove itself and to, uh, to gain awareness um, on the Hill and across our government, that, that we will really gain momentum and support uh, to, to get the resources that are needed. I'm going to ask you a question about, about Congress here in, in a little bit, but uh, before we move in that direction, would you say the GEC spends more time dealing with uh, the, the state actors like China, Russia, and Iran, or, or more time combating the propaganda released by Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and other uh, uh, radical groups? So um, we're really divided up. As I mentioned before, we have threat teams. We have a CT team, a Russia team, an Iran team, and a China team. Um, and this is really resource driven. Um, so, you know, how much time and effort we can put in terms of the people we can put on those teams, uh, the funding that we can provide to different programs globally, that really all is resource dependent. I'll tell you that the, the problems of uh, disinformation uh, and propaganda are different as they relate to uh, terrorist organizations trying to radicalize people online versus, you know, state actors like Russia and China trying to undermine the U.S. And just to give you a, a sort of a broad understanding, you know, I think it's fair to say that the Russia or that the Kremlin and Russia often basically swamps the media information, uh, the media environment rather, with a tsunami of lies. And outside of Russia, uh, the Kremlin really seeks to weaken its adversaries by manipulating the information environment in nefarious ways. They, they seek to polarize domestic political conversations, and they really attempt to destroy the public's faith in good governance um, and independent media and democratic principles. Um, and, you know, what we actually identified um, with our Pillars of Russian Disinformation report is how they're using um, a disinformation ecosystem with five pillars, and these are official government communications, state-funded global messaging, uh, cultivation of proxy information sources. They weaponize social media, which is something that I think the public is more aware of than the other pillars. Yep. And they use cyber-enabled disinformation campaigns. But we really focus on the cultivation of uh, proxy sources uh, in our report that you can find on, on the State Department's website and the Global Engagement Center's page um, because of how they use it for a media multiplier effect to really push out disinformation narratives. And I want to touch on China real quick because, you know, while the Kremlin is really trying to chaotically disrupt the current world order to accomplish its goals, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is really seeking to shape, uh, to, to try and shape the world order to Beijing's advantage. So it's pursuing a comprehensive and coordinated influence campaign to try to advance its interests and undermine the U.S. And we're seeing the CCP employ a whole-of-government approach using political, economic, uh, military, and information tools to advance its influence. And oftentimes it tries to sell its information operations as benign and friendly, a uh, win-win for everyone. But much of what uh, Beijing is doing in the information space is really underpinned um, by, uh, by covert, corrupt, and coercive uh, effects and, and measures that they're using. 
So what I think you're, I, I heard you just say, uh, and I think this is uh, for those people who studied Russia and China uh, extensively in the national security uh, world, uh, the Russians are seeking to tear things down so that we're all equally bad. <laughs> and the Chinese are working to build up their power base so that they have much greater control over the global economy. Is that, is that a, in a nutshell? Am I, am I close? I think that's really fair to say. And, you know, we just see uh, China using these corrupt, coercive, um, you know, and uh, and covert uh, ways of influencing the information space. And like I said, in, in ways that seem like they're benign, friendly, win-win for everyone. But, you know, you don't have to look much further um, to uh, than to look at what's happening with the atrocities in Xinjiang um, towards the Uyghur Muslims there and how... Uh, the Chinese Communist Party uses disinformation as a weapon mm. to try to shape global perceptions about about China. Sure. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Leah Gabriel, and we're discussing the role of the Department of State's Global Engagement Center. Uh, so, Leah, I've seen you testify before Congress on, on C-SPAN. Yes, I am that kind of a nerd. Uh, that's the stuff we see in the open, right? Uh, it's very public. I'm certain you spent uh, plenty of time in closed session t- testimony as well, probably in a more classified uh, environment. What happens differently in those closed session hearings that would give uh, Americans greater confidence in their elected leaders? Do members of Congress still put on a show for political consumption uh, by their respective bases, or are there real bipartisan approaches to American national security when the cameras are off? Well, I think the answer is, is both. I mean, when the cameras are on in the uh, media environment that we're currently in, uh, whenever there's a camera on, I think you're seeing um, uh, political divisiveness and you're seeing uh uh, politicians wanting to get that soundbite, you know, wanting to to make their point, get their soundbite, and I think it, it it's very frustrating when you're trying to serve in a a real national security purpose, and when you have a great team behind you, like I did at the Global Engagement Center, it's frustrating when politicians uh, in the uh, open media environment are using that opportunity as a platform uh, and a stage just to try to make a point and to try to make a political point sometimes at the expense of the mission itself. That's very frustrating. Yeah. But I will tell you that the Global Engagement Center had very, very strong bipartisan support. It was bipartisan legislation that established the Global Engagement Center. And that's going to be critical to its success going forward. Um, and in those those closed um, sessions that you mentioned, I found that I spent a lot of time with staffers on the Hill um, they're they're you know very smart. They're very intense. They're very dedicated to understanding um, both what we're doing and accomplishing at the Global Engagement Center, what we were when I was there, um, and they're also very focused on figuring out what they can do to help. Um, but they're also very critical, you know. So uh, y- you come up against some very very tough questions when you um, spend time in those closed sessions, both with um, members of Congress as well as their staffs. But there's a lot of substantive work that's really being done there. Uh, it's unfortunate that so much of what's actually seen publicly uh, is political grandstanding. So after two years at the Global Engagement Center, uh, how would you compare the disinformation campaigns from both 
China and Russia. So what I mean by that is, which country is more skilled in the use of what we refer to as sharp power? Uh, for our audience, the, the use of sharp power is when countries attempt to undermine other nations by essentially hijacking the information sphere and promoting false narratives, among other things. So who, who's better at it, China or Russia? Well, I think that um, Russia is better at disrupting and, and um and pushing out disinformation narratives using social media. Uh, but we're seeing China use more Russian-like tactics. But China has a much broader approach. Um, you know, they, they're uh, directly and indirectly pushing propaganda narratives while using coercive tactics to silence their critics. Um, the Chinese Communist Party has substantial economic and political influence. And many of the tools and tactics that they're using really look like, you know, well-funded public diplomacy, economic investments, or other means of traditional influence. Um, and, you know, the, the Global Engagement Center has been working to, um, on focusing to uh, expose and counter those um, efforts uh, that we're seeing from Beijing, uh, where they're trying to corrupt these traditional tools of engagement and try to turn them into uh, weapons of corrosive interference. Hmm. We're seeing the CCP do that. Um Russia, though, you know, we, we've seen bots and trolls, and as I mentioned, these five different pillars of Russia's disinformation ecosystem. Um, I think a good example of what we've seen is uh, in around uh, the COVID environment. We saw Russia um, very early on start to spread disinformation narratives uh, to undermine the U.S. and to undermine Western democracies. So we saw Russia very early on try to spread the disinformation narrative um, uh, for example, trying to say that uh, COVID was a U.S. bioweapon. Uh, right. And then what we saw very interestingly is how um, Beijing would take advantage of manipulation of the information environment and disinformation narratives spread by Russia, and they would reinforce those false narratives. And so we saw sort of convergence of false narratives around COVID, mm. where we saw um, officials from the Chinese Communist Party using Twitter to push out those false narratives that had started out in Russia um, and then we also saw the Chinese Communist Party use swarms of um, inauthentic accounts online to prop up those CCP narratives. So uh, the tools and the tactics, uh, they're, they're, you know, um, being copied and shared. Uh, we've seen Russian style tactics uh, used by the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong uh, and Taiwan. Um, and I think we'll continue to see that. Um, but I think uh, China is much more... Um, uh, I think, sophisticated in its approach to spread disinformation narratives, as I said before, looking um, like they're using traditional information, uh, you know, operations or tr traditional diplomacy tools. Well, if uh, my guess is, is uh, if they're spending $10 billion a year just on this uh, disinformation campaign and influence campaigns, uh, that's, a, that's a lot more than probably Russia can afford to spend. So uh, they're... In the long term, that's probably a, bi a bigger challenge for the United States, would you say, China? More uh, more sophisticated, as you said? Well, certainly China is a much more sophisticated challenge, I think, writ large. Um, but uh, I think that uh, Russia um, shouldn't be underestimated in terms of uh, it how, how savvy Russia is in terms of, you know, using disinformation. That's going back to the Soviet times, yeah. <laughs> a, a longstanding practice of um, Russia and you know, they have a lot of um, global media platforms mm -hmm. where they are pushing out their disinformation narratives in native languages. You know, I think yeah. um, some of the the um, 
the Russian platforms like Russia Today right. uh, obscure the truth. And people oftentimes don't know that those are directly coming from the Kremlin, that right. those narratives that are being pushed out on platforms like that are coming directly from the Kremlin. So it's very confusing. They oftentimes use um, what appear to be um, Western platforms or uh, they use um, conspiracy theorist websites to push out Russian disinformation narratives, and oftentimes these are directly connected. These proxy sites are directly connected to the Kremlin. It's a crazy mixed-up world we're living in today. So you you remained in the leadership post of the Global Engagement Center for a transition between administrations. Uh, what, what path forward do you see for GEC under the Biden administration? That's correct. Um, I did stay on um, to support the transition, and it was a very warm transition. Um, when I was in the role of leading the Global Engagement Center, I didn't bring in any other political appointees into the GEC. And instead, we really focused on building a team um, that would be lasting from one administration to the next. And what I saw is strong support from the new administration towards the Global Engagement Center. Um, I only stayed for a month, so you know we'll see how it goes. Um, but I can tell you that we have a very, very strong team of experts who are dedicated professionals who are working on this problem set every day. And what you see at the Global Engagement Center now is they have much greater resources um, and the, the expertise, the people who are focused on this problem set every single day and specific to these different threat actors are there at the Global Engagement Center. So I see uh, what we have is a strong leadership team there and experts who are dedicated. Uh, and I feel as though um, the Global Engagement Center is in a, a strong position as we um go into this new administration. So we have just a, just a few minutes left. Uh, I'll give you the last word. What else would you like the American people to know about the U.S. Department of State's Global Engagement Center? I think it's important for people to know about the great work that's being done there and the capability that could be if the Global Engagement Center were to be properly funded. Um, in the president's budget request to Congress, President Trump requested an increase to 138 million for the Global Engagement Center. And to, you know, to put that in perspective, we know that as we've talked about, uh, just as one example, the Chinese Communist Party is using around 10 billion a year for their global information operations, not just you know, specific disinformation, but their global information operations. So you see how 138 million is, is very small in comparison yeah. uh, with what we're up against. Um, so I, I think it's important for Americans to ask their, their um, representatives, their congressmen and senators on the Hill, to support the efforts of the Global Engagement Center and to fund the Global Engagement Center. Uh, it, it got flatlined last year. Um, and so we really do need to see uh, that support from the Hill because you can't do, uh, you can't execute on the mission without properly being funded. That comes down to people, operations, being able to work with our partners, uh, being able to work uh, with our allies globally, being able to um, to uh, engage with technologists and being able to support technologists who are working on this problem set. So um, I hope Americans know how important this mission is. I think it's also important for people just to be aware of how disinformation is being used as a weapon and to manipulate people online. It's too often that when I ask someone for the source of information that they're telling me, that they say the internet. And I think we really have to think about uh, vetting the sources of information that we're using. You know, in the old days, uh, if you ran into somebody at the barbershop or at the gas station and they told you something, you would want to vet that information. You would want to figure out who was that person and are they an accurate source of information. But for some reason now, oftentimes people go to the Internet 
and when they read something, they believe it to be true. And so I think we all have to really stop and pause at the point where we are in contact with information or disinformation and really assess it and vet it before we consume that or spread it and share it with others. Well, that brings us to the end of our show for today. Uh, Leah Gabriel, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. It's been great to chat with you. It's been great to be here with you, JR. Thank you. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. I'll find experts who can join us to address your topic. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.